a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, Episode 7.2, Cold War Kids. Last time we covered all 28 years of the Great Galactic War leading up to the Sith Empire's sack of Coruscant in 3653. In this episode, we will talk about the decade-long Cold War and the pivotal year of 3643 when the fragile peace would begin to break apart. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Star Wars, The Old Republic, Part 2, The Cold War. It's the years are 3653 to 3642 BBY. Last week, we ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. After 20 years of fighting in all corners of the galaxy, everything came to a head in 3653, when the true Sith simultaneously sacked and occupied Coruscant and entered into peace talks on Alderaan. After destroying the Jedi High Temple and taking over the Senate building, the Empire held Coruscant hostage, ensuring that the Republic would agree to even the most lopsided terms. To save their capital, the Republic signed the Treaty of Coruscant, ending the Great Galactic War and starting the Cold War. The Cold War lasts for 11 years, from 3653 to early 3642. When the events of the main uh, Star Wars The Old Republic begin, though the treaty held for a little more than a decade, tension simmered and the resumption of war was an ever-present concern. During this time of peace, both the Republic and Sith Empire tried to rebuild their battered fleets and armies, but resource scarcity became a growing problem. Because of the makeup of the galaxy, the Mid and Outer Rims have a high concentration of resource and mineral-rich planets, which the Sith gained possession of via the Treaty. This would prove problematic for the Republic as its resources were stretched thin in addition to a major economic depression that cratered certain industries. However, the Sith had their own problems because the Republic still held many worlds with key resource monopolies, and the Sith were often fighting insurgents on their newly obtained worlds, making full exploitation impossible. So, while each side attempted to reload, they were only partially successful. Another long-lasting effect of the treaty is a massive increase in anti-Jedi sentiment. Civilians blamed the Jedi for the Sith attack and the collateral damage it caused, believing it to be the result of the Force Holy War. Finally, and probably most importantly, the terms of the Treaty of Coruscant ensured the outbreak of another war inevitable. Much like the last episode, we will move through the timeline events during the Cold War, though we will break to do character profiles for Darth Malgus and Satel Shan, which we skipped last week to save some time. For the rest of the series, we're just going to call them the Sith Empire instead of the True Sith, unless we need to distinguish between other iterations of the Sith, um, because it's just easier this way. Yeah. When we left Coruscant, we were about a day into what will be the three-day Sith occupation of the Republic capital. Moments ago, the Treaty of Coruscant had been signed on Alderaan and Darth Angrel, commander of the Sith on Coruscant, ordered Sith forces to shift focus and act as peacekeepers for a couple of days. 
The entire city planet was placed under martial law by Angrel, who resided in the late Supreme Chancellor's chambers. After turning the Jedi Temple into a smoking ruin, Malgus realized that there would be no bombardment of Coruscant and went to hash things out with Angrel. As we said last week, Darth Malgus isn't much for office politics. He wants to raise Coruscant and take revenge take the revenge they've been promised. To Malgus, this was supposed to be a war of revenge against the Jedi and Republic who committed genocide against their Sith ancestors ages ago. While speaking with Angrel, uh, the scales fall from Darth Malgus's eyes, and he sees that the Sith Emperor and Dark Council are not the pure embodiment of the dark side, but politicians with their own ulterior motives and goals. Malgus raged impotently, but the Sith Emperor's orders were clear. During the meeting, Malgus committed several political missteps and was demoted to command of the blockade. After leaving the Senate building, Darth Malgus went to the hospital where Lord Adris had left Alina Daru and found it crowded with refugees. When the assembled crowd recognized Malgus, they began heckling and pelting him. Malgus let it slide until he was hit with a broken piece of concrete, at which point he used the force to part the crowd, killing a few in the process. Malgus carried Daru from the Republic Hospital and watched over her as she was transported to a Sith medical ship. From there, Darth Malgus took his position as fleet commander, disillusioned with the Sith and their empire. The next day, Malgus received intel from Angrel that Aaron Lanier, the Padawan of Master Venzalo, departed the peace talks on Alderaan without permission and was headed toward Coruscant. Lanier worked with a spice smuggler named Zerid Kor, and they were able to break into Coruscant's atmosphere after eluding Malchus's tractor beam. Unfortunately for Lanier and Kor, their ship was blown out of the sky, forcing the pair to jump. They survived thanks to Lanier's use of the force to slow their fall. Malgus went to the surface while Daru had recovered and was tasked with retrieving supplies from a nearby spaceport. Lanier and Kor searched the ruins of the Jedi Temple and were able to find security footage of the battle. They encountered Zalo's astromech droid, T-701, and retreated to a bombed-out apartment building to plan an attack and sleep. The next morning would prove to be the last of the Sith occupation. Zerid Kor did some scouting and noticed some Sith at the Liston spaceport led by Alina Daru. Meanwhile, Arian Lanier had gone to the Jedi Temple to meditate on her master's death, but was confronted by Malgus, who had researched the rogue Jedi. Lanier and Malgus dueled briefly until Lanier jumped onto Kor's passing speeder, headed for the list on the spaceport. Kor filled Lanier in about Daru, who was known to be Malgus's lover, and they came up with a plan. The smuggler and the Jedi rigged a gas leak that cleared out the spaceport, except for Daru and her team, who donned gas masks. Undaunted, Lanier and Kor took out the Imperials and knocked Daru unconscious. Lanier had intended to kill Alina Daru to hurt Malgus, but couldn't do it. However, Malgus found her with the body, and the two fought a brutal pitched lightsaber duel. Lanier saved Kor, who was allowed to leave the surface in a hijacked ship after the Jedi threatened to kill Daru. Malgus and Lanier then fought again, with the Sith Lord gaining advantage and rendering Lanier unconscious with Force Lightning. However, Malgus spared Lanier's life as she had done for Daru, allowing Lanier to escape Coruscant. For her actions, Arwen Lanier was exiled from the Jedi Order, though she was later given the option to return. Meanwhile, 
Malgus murdered Daru himself before departing Coruscant, seeing her as a weakness he could not afford. Darth Malgus, a land of contrasts. Character profile, Darth Malgus. The man who would one day become Darth Malgus was born in 3701 BBY on the imperial capital Droman Koss and given the name Veridun. Veridun? Veridun? I don't know. Veridun. That's what I'm going with. As a newborn, Veridun was adopted by an imperial scientist who loved and cared for him. Veridun's adopted father was the head of a zoo on a small world near Droman Koss where animals were imported, raised, and studied. As a boy, Veridun helped tend the menagerie and took general lessons in using the force. Later, Veridun killed a servant with the force for committing a minor offense, which caused his adoptive father to contact the Sith Academy because Sith pride themselves on that kind of cold-blooded murder. Due to his extreme power in the force, Veridun was selected to attend the Sith Academy and was apprenticed to a Sith pureblood named Lord Vindican. Uh, when he began his training, Veridun took a Sith name, Malgus. At some point before 3681, Malgus met and saved a young Twi'lek slave named Alina Daru from her abusive master. Despite the Empire's uh, disdain for non-humans, Malgus and uh, Alina became lovers and he treated her as a wife, though she was still technically his slave. As we said, Malgus is a land of contrast. In 3681, Malgus participated in the true Sith retaking of Korban, killing Jedi Master Kin uh, Darak. I don't know why I can't say that today. And finishing off his Master Vindican, who had been fatally wounded. As the war raged on, Malgus became a celebrated commander, and in 3667, he was promoted to the rank of Sith Lord, becoming Darth Malgus. Unfortunately, Malgus ran into Sistil Shan on Alderaan, got half his face blown off by Jace Malcolm, and was crushed into a mountain. Malgus survived with a cybernetic, uh, and was given a cybernetic respirator, and in 3660, unsuccessfully tracked Jedi Master Venzalo across the Outer Rim. Finally, in 3653, Malgus led the Jedi Temple attack during the sacking of Coruscant. There, he finally killed Venzalo and imploded the Jedi Temple into a pile of rubble. Two physical traits stick out about Malgus. Uh, his powder white skin and his size. He's, he is uh, this extremely white skin, like a porcelain doll, which sounds weird for a Sith Lord, but there you go. As a full-grown man, Malgus is uh, 7 feet tall, or about 2.13 meters tall. For comparison's sake, Chewbacca is about 7 feet 5, or 2.28 meters tall. So, Malgus is big. On the third night of the occupation, the Sith retreated from Coruscant once all the details of the peace treaty had been settled on Alderaan. All that remained of the Sith were some battle droids still patrolling the lower levels of Coruscant. Much of the city was surprised to see the Sith leave so quickly and without killing everyone. Mercifully, the sacking of Coruscant ended after a little more than three days, and that means we no longer have to talk about it. As we said in the last episode, there's so much info on the sacking of Coruscant because it appears in a mountain of tie-in content. 
Instead, we're left to talk about the Treaty of Coruscant that was signed by the Trusid Empire and the Joint Republic and Jedi Envoy, ending 28 years of war. The signatories were Senator Paran Amras, Jedi Master Darnala, and Darth Baras. The exact terms are unknown, but the substance of the agreement overwhelmingly favored the Sith, which tends to happen when you occupy the enemy's capital, holding them over the proverbial barrel. It's not an understatement to say that the Treaty of Coruscant completely transformed the face of the galaxy, shifting huge swaths of territory to the Sith Empire from the Republic. Though no maps exist to show the exact boundaries, it seems clear the Republic ceded almost everything in the outer and mid-ribs, including worlds like Malmora and Dantooine. Losing these worlds meant the Republic had to literally revoke their citizenship, meaning the planets could fight on alone or join the Sith Empire. The Republic was also required to turn over control of seven star systems, seemingly chosen at random as they had no strategic importance or resources. In addition to territorial concessions, the Republican Jedi also had a strict deadline to vacate battlefields and worlds changing hands. The true Sith were allowed to resume hostilities if the deadlines were not met. The Sith also took control of certain relics, antiquities, and other resources from the Republic, including a large hull on Coruscant. Finally, and perhaps most galling of all, certain Republic representatives were given protocol droids who followed them to ensure compliance with the treaty. Imagine having a treaty enforced by some annoying C-3PO droid. Just, just terrible. Terrible. Obviously, the terms of the treaty of Coruscant are lopsided toward the Sith Empire, but before we get into it, we have to ask a question. What the hell is the Republic supposed to do? Despite some high-profile deaths, the overall casualty numbers were low, probably in the tens of thousands, and the Sith held Coruscant hostage. They agreed to a the Republic agreed to a bad deal to save the lives of billions of people on Coruscant, which seems like the right choice. Back to the narrative. We're still in 3653. Following the completion of the Alderaan peace talks, Master Darnala and Satel Shan were dispatched to ensure compliance with the treaty. However, Master Darnala had plans to destroy the treaty and restart the war. To do so, Darnala began by instigating a firefight with a Sith ship, feigning capture, and then helping a captured bounty hunter named Braden escape to warn Grandmaster Zim of the attack. For releasing the prisoner, the Sith captain had Darnala executed by a Wookiee bounty hunter named Dalbora. The execution was reported to Sith Command, but transmission was intercepted by Republic spies. Meanwhile, Satil Shan's escape pod was rescued by Jedi Master Orgus Din and Lieutenant Heron Tavis. They sadly informed Shan that Darnala was dead, and Satil mourned the loss of her mentor and friend. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Darnala was very much alive and being aided by Dalbora after dominating his mind. With the universe believing her dead, uh, Darnala could work in the shadows. On Coruscant, Dalbora bombed the Senate Tower, killing a number of pro-treaty senators who Darnala believed were secretly undercover Sith agents. At the same time, Brayden, the bounty hunter Darnala freed, assassinated a Republic commander uh, who was meeting with Grandmaster Zim. Zim attempted to arrest Brayden, but was killed in the ensuing scuffle. 
Darnala also orchestrated the assassination of the Sith captain on Korriban. This caused Darth Barris and Darth Angrel to trade accusations that the other was committing treason to undermine the treaty. Just like that, the Republic and Jedi had a power vacuum at the top while Sith leadership was openly fighting. The resumption of war appeared inevitable. Everything would come to a head on Dantooine. Republic forces refused a withdrawal order prompting Senator Amris to dispatch Sean, Tavas, and Jedi Knight Fortress Gaul to Dantooine to de-escalate the situation. Unbeknownst to the others, Gaul was secretly working with Darnala. During the mission, Gaul brought Tavas into the conspiracy too. On Korriban, one of Darnala's agents attempted to assassinate Baras, intensifying the Sith infighting. Baras confronted Angrel, but instead of dueling, the two Sith puzzled out much of Darnala's plan. After concluding that she was behind, the Sith Lords went to confront her on Dantooine. Darnala learned that the Sith were coming and arranged to encounter them in the ancient crystal cave that Mitra Surik visited during KOTOR 2. Darths Baras and Engrel were joined by some Sith troopers, while Master Darnala was accompanied by Jedi Knight Gal Fortress, Lieutenant Haran Tavas, and the mind-controlled Wookiee Dalbora. Darnala's force attacked the Sith just as Satel Shan arrived. Darnala apologized and Shan agreed to joining her plot because she was no fan of the deal either. During the duel, Baras explained that one purpose of the treaty was to show the Jedi their own hypocrisy, to get them to admit they hate the Sith. Baras pointed, to Shan, pointed out to Shan how contrary to the Jedi code Darnala's actions had been. Darth Baras knocked Darnala down with a blast of Force Lightning, and the Jedi Master pleaded with Shad to continue to attack, continue the attack on the Sith. Satal, however, saw that Darnala had fallen to madness of the dark side and refused, causing Tavis and Gaul to do the same. Seeing her plans fall apart, Darnala attempted to punish Satal by killing Tavis, whom Shad had feelings for. Fortress Gaul stepped in to block Darnala's lightsaber strike after realizing she had fallen to the dark side. Darnala threw Gaul to the ground with the Force and ordered Dalbora to kill the down Jedi. Instead, Dalbora attacked Darnala after breaking free of her mind control. With one powerful punch to the face, Dalbora killed Darnala. That's right, a Jedi died from being punched in the face once. With Darnala dead, Dalbora fled and the Sith fled the scene, ending the Jedi's attempt to undermine the treaty. The story of Darnall's plan is told in the three-issue comic arc, Threat of Peace, released in 2009. Character Profile, Satil Sean. Born in 3699, 99? good God. Born in 3699 on Brentel 4 to a Jedi Knight named Tessiel Sean, Satel Shan is overwhelmingly strong in the forest and the last scion of Revan and, Shan- and Bastel Shan's force lineage. When Satel was very young, she was given to the Jedi Order. Shortly thereafter, a political controversy erupted centering on Tassiel's teachings that a Jedi could draw s- strength from attachments. She was exiled to a small, nameless world in the Outer Rim at the behest of the Republic. When the Order attempted to retrieve Tassiel years later, they only found her old dwelling place and a set of journals arrested to her daughter. Satel would cherish them for the rest of her life. 
From the time she entered the order until early 3681, Satellus served as the apprentice to Jedi Master Ngani Zo, whom she loved like a father. In 3681, she left Master Zhou to perfect the use of a double-bladed lightsaber under Jedi Battlemaster Ken Sao Dirac, one of the greatest duelists in the Order. Shan progressed through some of the Jedi trials, but had not completed them when the Sith returned and Derek sacrificed himself. After Derek's death, Satel became the Padawan to the Tegretta Jedi, Jedi Master Darnala. In the 14 years that elapsed from the initial invasion to the Battle of Alderaan, Satel Shan became a full-fledged Jedi Knight. At the Battle of Alderaan, her timely intervention saved the life of Jace Malcolm. She caught a lightsaber with her bare hand and probably saved the world from falling to the Sith. Following the battle, Satel and Jace became lovers, and after six months, Sham was pregnant. However, she saw darkness in Malcolm and broke off their relationship, deciding to keep the child a secret. In 3666, Satel gave birth to a boy named Theron who was immediately given to the to the Jedi for training under Master Zhou. By 3953, Shan's leadership and skills were legendary, and she reinforced that by leading the Republic to a stunning victory in the Battle of Renvar. Shan was so respected that she was chosen to be one of the three members for the Republic envoy to the peace talks on Alderaan. The events of the Battle of Dantooine and her former master's fall profoundly affected Shan, and she became a greater proponent of peace even if she still longed to end the Sith Empire's tyranny. The Cold War, much like its real-world counterpart, contains a number of proxy conflicts instigated behind the scenes by the two supposedly peaceful superpowers. Each one is trying to rebuild and rearm prior to the outbreak of another conflict, so open war is avoided and the superpowers try to gain an advantage by acting through third parties. This involved funneling money, weapons, and even personnel to proxies, which, unsurprisingly, allowed them to become far more powerful than either superpower ever intended. These proxies include the Exchange, the Mandalorians, the Order of Revan, the Hutt Cartel, and others. The Cold War is also the starting point for SWOTOR, as the player character backstories begin in 3643, and the main story starts in 3642, just days after the beginning of the Galactic War. We will talk a lot more about the classes and their stories next week, but for the time being, just know there are eight total classes, four Republic and four Sith, and they all have ridiculous titles or nicknames, kind of like Revan and the Jedi Exile, but far worse. However, worse still in 3653. That year, Jedi Master Nost Dural began compiling his series of timelines on the events leading up to the Great Galactic War and the Treaty of Coruscant for the Jedi Archives. The Republic consolidated into its new territorial boundaries while the Jedi were leaderless and without a home. Coruscant was no longer safe for Jedi as many Republic citizens and politicians blamed the Order for bringing a holy war down on their heads, which in a sense is true but the Republic still relied on the Jedi to act as peacekeepers and military commanders. So they scorn and revile the Jedi while still needing them. The Jedi, of course, could never abandon the Republic to its fate because no iteration of the Order was stupid enough to do that, except one led by Vruk Lamar. Due to the economic depression and widespread anger with the Jedi, 
the Republic voted against providing funding to rebuild the Jedi High Temple on Coruscant, leaving the Jedi in search of a new home. Their previous world, Ossus, was still a scorched, lifeless wasteland, and the location of the original Jedi homeworld, Tython, had been lost after the hyperlanes collapsed. Coincidentally, Satil Shan felt the call of the Force in 3653. She followed the call across the galaxy until 3651, when the Force showed her a previously unknown hyperspace route to Tython. For her discovery, Satil Shan was promoted to the rank of Jedi Master. Later in the year, the Jedi Order relocated to Tython, and in 3650, they began construction on a new Jedi Temple there. Elsewhere in the galaxy, a new world called Voss was discovered in the Outer Rim. Voss was the home to the naturally Force-sensitive people, also called the Voss, who relied on intensely accurate Force visions experienced by the Voss mystics to guide their governmental decisions. The visions of the Voss mystics were so accurate they predicted when and how the Sith would attack in 3649. After discovering the world, the Sith Emperor ordered an invasion to conquer and exploit the, Vo- exploit the Voss, but they were prepared. The Sith fleet arrived, but were obliterated by the Voss. The only positive for the Sith was that Imperial agents infiltrated the planet during the attempted invasion and abducted one Voss mystic who would later serve as the Emperor's voice. After the botched attack, both the Republic and Sith attempted to establish diplomatic relations with the Voss. The Sith claimed that the feet, their fleet commander had gone rogue against explicit orders. The Jedi, meanwhile, did not attempt diplomacy at all because they believed the Voss to be a sect of grey Jedi who ruled their society like the Sith. It's good to know that the Jedi are always sanctimi- sanctimonious no matter the iteration. In 3648, the Terrace Resettlement Initiative began on the ruined planet where the events of KOTOR began. 306 years before, in 3956, Darth Malak unleashed an orbital bombardment that leveled every building above two stories, turning the world into a desolate, crumbling landscape. The initiative attempted to clean up and start rebuilding parts of the world as a symbolic symbolic victory against the Sith. Unfortunately for the Republican terrorists, the terrorist resettlement initiative would ultimately fail at the hands of Darth Gravis and the Sith after six years. In 3647, the new Jedi High Temple was completed on Tython, and by 3645 at the latest... Satil Shan was named the new Grand Master of the Jedi Order and took on a a Kafar Padawan named Shingar Kanshi. In 3645, Jedi Master Bella Queeks discovered an 18-year-old Force-sensitive human named Kira Carson hiding out on Nara Shaddaa eight years before. Carson escaped Dramund Kos after learning she was one of the children of the Emperor. These children were abducted as infants and imbued with a small part of Maitage consciousness and could be mentally controlled by the Emperor at any time. Soon after her discovery, Master Queeks took Carson on as her Padawan, though Kira did hide the truth about her past for some time. Both Kira Carson and the children of the Emperor will become focal points of the SWOTOR story in the future. We know nothing that occurred in 3644, which is fine because 3643 is when the Treaty of Coruscant really began to fall apart. 
By now, you're thinking aloud to yourself, didn't you guys say that this Cold War was filled with proxy wars and side battles earlier, and so far all you've given us is Jedi house hunters and the attempted revival of Taurus? Yes, that's true, but here's the thing. The Cold War doesn't end until 3642 when we said the treaty started to fall apart. In 3643, we weren't kidding. You wanted proxy wars between third-party intermediaries using clandestine meetups, slush funds, and weapons caches from the Republic's slash Jedi and or Sith? Well, you are in luck. The following events all take place in 3643. Darth Angrel's Personal War of Revenge an Imperial intelligence hunt for a terrorist known as the Eagle, the Spec Force incident, the Alderanian Civil War, the Mandalorian Great Hunt, the conclusion to the Separatist War on Ord Mantel, the formation of the Rift Alliance, Operation Endgame, Plan Zero, and a joint Jedi and Sith mission known as Independent Operation Sebadon. That's 10 consequential events in 3643, more than we've had in the entire Cold War to this point, nine of which are proxy wars or battles of some kind. As we noted earlier, 3643 is also when we get to, when we have to get to know the eight class characters. Now, we are going to spend all the next episode doing character profiles for each one, covering their actions from the prologues to the beginning of the Galactic War, but that means we will end up covering the ten major events again. Since the timing is hazy, there's no way to tell the sequence in which these ten events occurred, with the exception of Plan Zero and Darth Angle's personal war, which are collectively the final straws that break the Treaty of Coruscant's back. Shortly thereafter, in early 3642, the Cold War would end and the Galactic War would begin. Now, you might think that they'd come up with a better name than Galactic War, given that we just finished the Great Galactic War, but you'd be wrong. Unhelpfully, the Third Galactic War breaks out in 3630, so this is only going to get worse before it gets better. Anyway, on to the events of 3643, where we'll start with the conclusion of the Separatist War on Ord Mantell. At least three years before, Separatist factions joined together to wage a guerrilla war uh, on the government of Orb Mantel, which was extremely corrupt. At least three battles were fought prior to 3643 when Havoc Squad, now led by Lieutenant Heron Tavis, was dispatched to bring an end to the conflict. Just before their mission, Havoc Squad was reinforced by a new soldier nicknamed Meteor to aid their efforts. Meteor serves as the player character for the Republic Trooper class. The Mantellian Separatists were being secretly funded by the Sith in order to destabilize the Republic and the Mid-Rim. The Separatists put up a valiant fight, but were overwhelmed by Havoc Squad and other Republic troops, ending the short-lived Separatist War on Ord Mantell. Despite Republic success on Ord Mantell, Sith involvement would be rewarded in other ways as the Spec Force incident occurred immediately after the Separatist War ended. For years, the members of Havoc Squad had grown disillusioned with the Republic's handling of everything and fighting on the side of a corrupt government that constantly hung them out to dry. Tevis, who grew an excellent bushy black mustache since the last time we saw him on Dantooine, led Havoc Squad to defect to the Sith Empire en masse. Tevis didn't trust Meteor and abandoned them to their fate. Specforce incident continued throughout the rest of the year as Meteor formed a new Havoc squad and captured or killed all the defectors by the end of 3643.
two events down, eight to go. Elsewhere, Mandalorians from across the galaxy came together for a tournament where participants would face off against one another to capture a bounty. Whoever captured or killed the bounty first moved on to the next round. It's a surprisingly well-structured tournament for the Mandalorians. One of the entrants, later called Hunter, had trained under the bounty hunter we met earlier named Brayden. Hunter is the player character for the Bounty Hunter class, the Imperial analog to the Republic Trooper class, aka Meteor. The Great Hunt occurred on all worlds across the galaxy and targeted criminals, security consultants, and more. During the event, the Hunter gained a nemesis named Taro Blood, who was looking to kill the other contestants. It's a way to win, yes, but it's also considered dishonorable by Mandalorians, and we know how they are. The Great Hunt eliminated many targets, but before the final round match between the Hunter and their nemesis, Taro Blood went to Nar Shaddai and killed Brayden, the Hunter's teacher and father figure, and another member of their crew. The final target was a Jedi Master named Kellyan Jaro, who was known to kill hundreds of Mandalorians when they aided the Sith in the sacking of Coruscant. Both Blood and the Hunter tracked their quarry to a starship, but Blood was captured and thrown in a cell after falling prey to a Jedi mind trick. The Hunter eventually found Jaro Blood in the cell, but refused to help as revenge for the murder of Brayden. On the bridge, the Hunter bested the Jedi Master and killed him, but spared his Jedi Padawan, Thindis Nori. Back on Dromenkos, the Hunter was proclaimed the champion of the Great Hunt. Meanwhile, Political intrigue was afoot as a group of powerful worlds formed a sub-faction of the Republic, dubbing themselves the Rift Alliance. Numerous Republic planets like Manan, Selikami, Balmoras, Government in Exile, and more joined together to combat the incompetence of the Republic. When they formed in 3643, they remained aligned with the Republic, but their threat to secede was ever-present given the resource monopolies they controlled. Four down, six to go. Next up is the Sith hunt for a terrorist known as the Eagle, a former Imperial pilot who blew up an Imperial dreadnought called the Dominator, killing thousands of crew, including Dark Council member Darth Jadis. In response, the Sith Empire sent out an up-and-coming intelligence asset codenamed Cypher 9 to investigate. Cypher 9 represents the player character uh, for the Imperial Agent class, the Sith Long Range Covert class. The Eagle had built up formidable allies and resources across a number of worlds, and Cypher 9 investigated each one thoroughly. During this adventure, the Sith discovered that the Eagle and his secret Sith backer got their hands on the Eradicators, satellite superweapons that could destroy a, sing a city with a single shot. This is the 10th superweapon we've had on the show so far. Finally, the Imperial agent arrived on Nalhutta and killed the Eagle in a firefight, but found that the terrorist only had deactivation codes for half the Eradicators. Cypher 9's handler got a tip on the whereabouts of the Eagle's Sith backer on a dreadnought in an uninhabited star system. After boarding the ship, Cypher 9 was surprised to discover that Darth Jadis was the Sith backer and had been committing the acts of terrorism to destabilize the Empire so it could then be purged of corrupt elements like the Dark Council. Jadis had also developed a failsafe that required the remaining eradicators to be activated momentarily, killing thousands before Jadis could be defeated. 
Cypher 9 did this and was able to trap Jadis using ray shields and shut down the Eradicators and turn Jadis over to the Dark Council for questioning. Next up is Independent Operation Sabaddon, which is depicted in the novel Fatal Alliance. For what may be the first time in history, the Jedi and Sith were forced to work together to defeat an opponent. This would become a recurring theme in the SWOTOR expansions and then become a necessity of life when the Eternal Empire arrives in 3637. But don't worry, these are merely alliances of convenience and necessity, not an end to the eternal struggle, struggle between darkness and light. Never you fear, the Jedi and Sith will resume their intractable holy war before we're done with the SWOTOR series. In Wild Space, a number of individuals converge on a disabled ship called Sinzia, hoping to retrieve its nav computer to find the location of Sebadon, a remote world in the Outer Rim. During the skirmish, the Sinzia was destroyed, but its nav computer was salvaged and turned over to the huts for auction. Sith apprentice Eldon Axe was one of those who failed to retrieve the nav computer, but was spared by her master, Darth Tratus, to rectify her mistake and find a way to Sebadon. Chatris explained that Sebadon is a seemingly volcanic world where a woman named Xandrit fled with her four sensitive children to stop the Sith from taking them. Sebadon is valuable because Xandrit created a series of biomechanical self-replicating droids known as fast breeders that were programmed to protect her children at all costs. The Sith, Republic, and others want to reprogram the fast breeders to use them as weapons. Unfortunately, the fast breeders gained sentience, creating their own replication factory, and determined that the best way to defend the children would be to take over the galaxy. Chatris then revealed that Axe was one of Xandrich's children, who was abducted before she fled Dramatkas for Sabadon, a fact the Master had always hidden from his apprentice. Elden Axe was ordered to go to Nalhata and retrieve the nav computer. Meanwhile, across the galaxy on Coruscant, Satel Shan's Padawan, Shirgir Konchi was involved in a firefight with a Mandalorian who was on Coruscant looking for information on something called Sinzia and Zandet. Striver survived and escaped while Konchi discovered the hut auction of the auction of the wreck of the Sinzia and was dispatched by Shan to investigate the events on Nal Hata. Hata. There, Conchi, Elden Axe, and the Mando all attempted to steal the nav computer but were attacked by four fast breeder droids that had self-replicated from tiny nanomachines known as hexes. The three enemies worked together to destroy the droids before the Mandalorian made off with the nav computer and coordinates to Sebadon. Axe and Conchi were also able to deduce the coordinates and went off to warn their respective masters. The Sith and Republic each arrived at Sabaddon with small fleet detachments of between 15 to 20 ships. Attempting to parley with a woman on the surface failed when eight surface-to-air missiles were fired from the planet. One made impact and burrowed deep in the hull, unloading a number of fast-breeder hexes that replicated and took control of a few Republic ships. The Sith ships fared no better as their flagship was hit by hex missiles and droid-hijacked Republic ships began ramming maneuvers. Eventually, Dal Striver contacted both Sith and Republic and arranged a truce on Sabaddon's moon to talk tactics. 
Shriver explained that the fast breeders gained sentience and their replication rate would allow them to eradicate all life in the galaxy within one generation. The droids had to be contained and destroyed. After some cajoling, the Republic and Sith agreed to work together to stop the fast breeders. To do so, their forces were combined into air and ground units. Most of the remaining troops were divided into two groups to simultaneously attack the main droid main droid production and AI facilities on Sabaddon. The remaining ships formed a small fleet to provide orbital cover fire. Darth Tratus also required that he and Sean switch apprentices for the mission because Sith are weird like that. Republic and Sith ships provided ground support, but the alliance began to break down due to mistrust. Luckily, the mismatched fleet held together just long enough. On the ground, Darth Tratus predictably tried to entice Kanchi to the dark side, preying on his anger at the Jedi Council's decision. However, Kanchi held firm to the light, and his group completed the mission to destroy the droid manufacturing plant. Sitel Shan and Elden Axe's team were unable to take the AI facility, but then discovered a ship buried in a lake of reddish liquid that was thought to be lava, but is instead a warm, viscous red goop. The red goop was organic and gave the fast breeders their type of bi- their biological component. Within the buried ship, Shan and Axe found a tank filled with red goop and a clone of Elden Axe. Clone Elden was freed and explained that she attempted to shut down the fast breeders when the space battle began, but was mortally wounded by the remainder of her mother's consciousness stored in the red fluid. Don't ask us how being killed by your mom's consciousness stored in red goop works, because we don't know, but it definitely happened. As the clone was dying, she told Eldon how to control the fast breeders, since any of Xanthit's children could do so. Sean and Axe resurfaced, and the Sith apprentice was able to control the droids, ending the battle in mere minutes. Sean and the rest of the Republic were given safe passage and departed Sibadon, while Axe used the fast breeders to kill Darth Chatris before causing them to self-destruct. In the aftermath, Elden Axe became the Sith apprentice of a member of the Dark Council, and Jigar Kanchi was deemed worthy to take the Jedi Trials, which he passed. Republic intelligence discovered that Sepadon's orbit was degrading, likely a result of the destruction of all fast breeder droids destabilizing the planet. Okay, that's 6 of 10 done. The Alderaanian Civil War begins in 3643, with Alderaan's secession from the Republic, and will last for about 10 years until it is voluntarily re-annexed into the Republic. We're really only talking about the first year of the conflict right now, though we will return for the conclusion later. Right now, the Civil War serves as the nexus for many characters in 3643, including every player character except the Bounty Hunter, Sith Inquisitor, and Sith Warrior. Alderaan also features... Boris Ulgo, a descendant of Trask Ulgo, the ensign who sacrificed himself for Revan on the Endar Spire. To explain the Alderaanian Civil War, we need a brief digression in Alderaanian politics. Alderaan has an elective monarchy selected by a parliament from among the world's noble houses, such as House Organa, House Cortes, House Pantir, and more. Following the Sith attack on Alderaan in 3667, Alderaan shed its pacifist ideals and became warmongers in the Senate. 
In 3653, Alderaan unilaterally seceded from the Republic after the Treaty of Corsan because they wanted to keep fighting against the Sith. The secession nearly caused war on Alderaan, but local security was able to maintain control for a decade. Then, in early 3643, the Crown Prince was assassinated and the Queen died within days of one another, causing, ending, the line of House of Pantir. Alderaan's parliament was hopelessly deadlocked between three factions, houses loyal to the Republic, those loyal to the Sith, and those acting independently. The Sith were able to influence events by backing House Thule and their retainers, giving them assets to allow their return to prominence. When the Sith got involved, the Republic immediately began funneling money and resources to House Organa and their retainers. Other houses lined up behind Organa and Thole, with House Olgo leading an independent faction. With the factions splitting votes, Parliament was too divided to pick a monarch, so Boris Olgo forced the issue by attempting to usurp the vacant throne. This created a constitutional crisis the Parliament was unable to resolve, and open fighting began within hours. The Jedi also opened up peace negotiations between the three factions almost immediately, though they would amount to little. For the rest of 3643, skirmishes were common, and so were visits from the player characters, uh, some, as part of, some as part of the nine other big events we're discussing. Uh, Cypher 9 visited Alderaan to remove a member of House Quartress, uh, who is backing the Eagle. Meteor arrived in the wake of the Spec Force incident and aided House Organa during uh, his search for Havoc Squad members who defected. The Hunter also landed on Alderaan, eliminating a, a target during the Mandalorian Great Hunt. The Smuggler class character, later given the callsign Voidhound, made clandestine deliveries with Republic-aligned houses. Later, after the peace talk began, the Jedi Consular class character, who would one day earn the title Barson Thor, kept the negotiations going, saving the Jedi Master, leading the negotiations from the Dark Plague. As we said, the Alderaanian Civil War lasts for 10 years, largely marked by sporadic fighting. However, Alderaan has another part to play in the last of our 10 big events of 3643, the Desolator Crisis, which we will get to momentarily. First, we have to address Operation Endgame, a top-secret action led by Republic SIS operative Theron Sean in Plan Zero, which is Darth Barriss' attempt to goad the Republic back into war. Operation Endgame appears in the final SWOTOR tie-in comic arc, The Lost Sons. There, we're introduced to Satel Sean's son, Theron Sean a not-quite-force-sensitive ex-Jedi Padawan who now works for the Republic Spy Bureau, SIS. Theron Chan is sent on a mission to rescue Jedi Master Nagani Zhou, who resurfaced after going missing ten years before. Zhou trained Satel Shan and many other Jedi and tried unsuccessfully to train Theron. During the process, Shan and Zhou stumble upon the secret Sith operation run by Darth Mekis, who lost a duel to Satelshan during the Battle of Renvar. Through their investigation, Theron and Zhou find a seemingly insignificant provision in the Treaty of Coruscant that ceded seven non-contiguous, totally lifeless star systems to the Sith. 
Zoe recognizes the Vesla system from the list in the group went to investigate finding a hidden trove of Sith superweapons. Darth Mechus loved superweapons and had developed a space station called the Sunraiser that would siphon the materials and energy from a star to produce parts and components for superweapons at unprecedented speeds. While scouting, Theron saw five superweapons docked with the Sunraiser, including the Gauntlet, the Emperor's Shadow, the Silencer, and two ships, the Ascendant Spear, and the Undying. Taken together, these are the 11th through 15th superweapons of the show. Three of these will reappear in the narrative, and we will discuss them when we get there. While investigating, Theron and Zoe are captured, but they escape thanks to Sean's cybernetic implants. During their escape, Theron was able to set the Sunraiser for destruction by disabling its shielding, and Master Zoe sacrificed his life to save others. Theron and others escaped thanks to Zoe's sacrifice, and the Sunraiser was destroyed. Our ninth event, Plan Zero, is a series of assassinations of high-ranking Republic officials and Jedi carried out by Darth Barras's apprentice, the Sith Warrior-class character, a.k.a. the Empire's Wrath. Barras used the plan to eliminate his master, Darth Vengian, and ascend to his seat on the Dark Council. It was also intended to restart war, though Angrel's Desolator Crisis would become the main catalyst for reasons that will become obvious. Finally, we arrive at the last of our ten big events, the Desolator Crisis. In early 3643, a recently promoted Jedi Knight was sent to Coruscant to investigate a dark presence with Jedi Master Bele Kiwix and her apprentice Kira Carson. In the future, this knight will be known as the Hero of Tython, and they represent the Jedi Knight-class character. On Coruscant, the Jedi Trio discovered that the Dark Presence was a man named Eli Tarnas, a scientist working with the Republic's superweapon initiative. In reality, Eli Tarnas is a Sith named Tarnas working undercover and is the son of Darth Angrel. Tarnas realized he was in danger and contacted the Black Sun to help him escape Coruscant with a prototype superweapon called the Prison Planet. Uh, or the planet prison. The planet prison was a device capable of ionizing the atmosphere of a planet, making it, making it impossible for ships to depart or enter. Essentially, it's a planetary blockade in a briefcase and is our 16th superweapon of the podcast. Due to Tarnus's security breach, off-world superweapon facilities were in danger, and the Jedi went to secure them while the hero of Tython and Padawan Kira Carson stayed to deal with Tarnus. A chase ensued across across Coruscant until the Sith was finally cornered while speaking with his father via hologram. Angrel watched on and urged Tarnus to fight the Jedi as a proud Sith father would. However, the hero and Kira Carson were able to defeat and kill Tarnus, with Angrel looking on in horror. In his fury, Angrel declared that he would take his vengeance by using the Republic's own superweapon against them. Using the files he transmitted, uh, using the files transmitted by his son, Angrel sent his three apprentices, Praven, Sadich, I don't know, uh, and Nefarid, to Tatooine, Narshada, and Alderaan to steal superweapons, while Angrel publicly declared his own war. Though the Sith Empire 
disavowed Angle's actions, they secretly supplied him with resources. The Republic, however, refused to get involved, leaving the Jedi largely to fend to largely fend for themselves. Due to Master Kirik's absence, the hero was made Kirik Carson's temporary Jedi Master, and the duo traveled to various locales across the galaxy to stop Darth Angle's threat. On Ord Mantel, Carson was briefly captured and interrogated by the Sith before being rescued by the Hero of Tython. On Nar Shaddaa, they encountered Lord Sadek, who was trying to steal the Power Guard Enhancement System, which created super soldiers through cybernetics and stims. This is our 17th super weapon on the show, and the only one that sounds like a Nintendo peripheral. Eventually, Sadek and his Sith forces were defeated. Sadek was killed, and the Republic ended the Power Guard program because it's bad to perform illegal human experimentation. By this time, Vitate had become aware of Carson's actions and decided to get involved, sending another of his children named Vallis to retrieve her. Vallis lured the hero and Kira to an abandoned mining facility in the Outer Rim, posing as an Imperial who wished to defect. However, when the Jedi duo arrived... Vallis revealed Carson's shocking past and they were that they were both children of the Emperor. In the ensuing duel, Vallis was killed and Kira subsequently revealed her past to the Jedi High Council. Despite calls for her exile, Grandmaster Sean allowed Carson to continue training under the hero. The hero and their apprentice then went to Tatooine, where they confronted Lord Pravin, who was attempting to activate the Shock Drum superweapon. Shock Drum is our 18th superweapon and would tear a world apart by pushing tectonic plates together using electrical pulses. Pravin defeated Master Kiwix, leaving her for dead, but lost a duel to the hero and Carson. Instead of death, Pravin, a pureblood Sith, opted for redemption and would go on to fight valiantly for the Jedi. Next, the Jedi traveled to Alderaan and briefly got involved with the Civil War there. The hero and Carson foiled House Thule's attempt to take to control the Deathmark superweapon and killed Lord Nefarid in the process. Deathmark was an orbital satellite capable of precision laser strikes and was destroyed during the fighting. The Deathmark is our 19th superweapon. However, it wasn't all good news as the hero's former Jedi Master, Orgus Din, was killed by Darth Angrel while trying to infiltrate the Sith Lord's flagship above Alderaan. By this time, it was nearly the end of 3643, and Darth Angrel finished production of a superweapon called the Desolator and mounted it on his flagship, the Oppressor. The Desolator was actually a combination of the Planet Prison, Deathmark, and Shock Drum weapons, allowing it to ionize an atmosphere and rip a planet's mantle apart. The Desolator is our 20th superweapon of the show and the 10th in this episode alone. Despite all his plans turning to ash, Angle decided to attack the Jedi on Tython directly after testing his superweapon on a Republic world called Euphrates. Though the planet was left intact, the Desolator destroyed much of its service and killed more than 16 million people in the process. The Oppressor arrived above Tython and ionized its atmosphere, cutting off comms and disabling any starship trying to pass through. However, the weapon's long recharge time meant that it needed more time to power up, giving the hero and Kira time to infiltrate the Oppressor. 
The Jedi fought through numerous power guard soldiers and Sith to reach Angle on the bridge, but the Sith Emperor chose that time to possess Kira. She spoke with the Emperor's voice and emanated his dark presence, commanding Angrel to kill the hero. Uh, Kira was briefly freed from the Emperor's power and rejoined her Jedi Master to duel and defeat Angrel. However, the Sith Lord, er, the Sith Emperor, then possessed Carson again and cursed her strong will, which made her more difficult to control. Carson then dueled her master, but was able to use her own strength and the light side to banish the Emperor from her mind permanently. The hero and Carson fled the oppressor before it was destroyed and went to Tython to speak with Grandmaster Satel Shan and the rest of the Jedi Council. However, the celebration was short-lived as the Desolator Crisis had stretched the, cur- the Treaty of Coruscant beyond the breaking point. Engel's personal crusade touched off or escalated conflicts on a dozen worlds and exposed the false peace of the Cold War as a sham. As 3642 dawned, the Republic slash Jedi and Sith moved their forces into place in preparation for the resumption of hostilities. The Galactic War is about to begin. Then we'll have to wait for next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time... We will do character profiles for all eight class characters as we finally begin the events of SWOTOR. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPod or email us at FOTORPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.